I'm going to be reading Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. This is what you requested from the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not continue to hear the voice of the Lord our God or see this great fire any longer so we will not die. Then the Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. This is the word of God. I want you to think back to what it was like as a kid waiting for Christmas morning. Uh, some of you in here might be those kids still waiting for Christmas morning. Um, all the festivities leading up to that day, getting to the week of Christmas, the longing with anticipation for that morning, maybe hoping you're going to get what you wanted, maybe hoping your parents got the hint um, and you got the toys you wanted or whatever. Um, if you were like me, some years lived up to the hype and others maybe not so much, right? Uh, some of our Christmas mornings and even as adults, sometimes they're filled with incredible joy and it's a sweet time of shalom and peace. Um, other times, not so much. Uh, sometimes our Christmases have been filled more with disappointment. The brokenness of this age guarantees us that even the best of Christmas mornings will only bring so much happiness. And often, if you live long, long enough, celebratory days and holidays and these markers that our culture has, Christmas being one of them, they're often filled with mixed emotions. Broken family situations, maybe loss of friends or family, maybe reminders of grief, maybe just simple feelings of times you've been forgotten, times you've been disappointed, times you've been let down. Often all these things creep in and mix our hopeful anticipations with skepticism and sadness. What we all are really waiting for and what we all really want in the ideals of Christmas at their best is provision, abundance, peace, and joy, belonging, family. For the Christian, we believe and understand that these things can only ultimately be found in the person of peace, Jesus, the Messiah, who was born to redeem the world. Today, we're beginning this Advent series that we've entitled Waiting. We're gonna spend the next four weeks looking at how Jesus fulfills all of the longings of our soul as we await for the restoration of all things. The word Advent simply means arrival. And so during this Advent season, as Christians, we look back to the first arrival or the first advent of Jesus. And, and we also, as we look back, we simultaneously look ahead because we realize that, that he came, but the world's still broken. And there's still some, some longing and restoration that has to happen. And so we look ahead to the return of Jesus when he will come back and make all things new. And so during this series, we want to sit in the waiting I know that a lot of you are in seasons of waiting. This last year has been a difficult year for many of us. But the thing about, um, unlike a child waiting for Christmas morning, when our hope is in Jesus, we know that our waiting will never be met with disappointment. He will fulfill everything we long for. So good morning again, church. Um, 
As I said earlier, my name is Joel, if I've not had the privilege of meeting you. Um, I'm thankful to be gathered with you all as the church. Um, and yeah, I get to serve as one of the pastors and elders here at New Eden Church. And honestly, it's just a privilege to be alongside and a part of the membership of the body. And as my brothers and sisters, just be on mission together with you guys. And so thank you guys for being a part of what God's doing. Um, so as we begin this series... I do want to remind you that throughout all of the scriptures, we see this melodic line of promises that, that in the midst of chaos, in the midst of brokenness, someone is coming. All of the, the prophetic promises that we're gonna look at over these next four weeks, waiting for a prophet, waiting for a shepherd, waiting for a king, all of these that we see, I got distracted by something, sorry. All of these that we see, something in the back that has nothing to do with what you guys are looking at, so. Um, all of these lines that we've seen, they're built on one promise, Genesis 3, 15. If you remember, it was right after Adam and Eve fell and rebelled against God, and there was this promise of one who would come and bruise the head of the serpent, that would step on and crush the head of the evil one, the serpent. And all of the promises are built upon this. So today, we're gonna to look specifically at the promise of a prophet. You just heard the text read, but God promised that there would be a prophet that would arise someday. One like Moses, but better. And today we're gonna to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise and how his arrival or his advent of this true and final prophet is all that we need, even if we don't know it. So I don't have any points for us today. Um, today's sermon is gonna be a little more story formed. I'm gonna ask you to kind of get with me into the meta narrative of scripture, this whole overarching story. We're gonna walk through the story, kind of starting with the nation of Israel and slavery and how Moses was raised up and, so, uh, and see how it points us forward to Christ. And so I want you guys to just kind of walk with me through the story. I'll have some scripture at certain times. I'll pull in, I'll have it on the screen. You're also welcome to follow along through the CSB version is what we use on your phone or your physical copy of the Bible as well. So I want to start, though, by setting the scene for you. The people of Israel, after Joseph was on the scene, they end up growing into this nation. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they grow into this nation, and they had been enslaved by Pharaoh. I want you to imagine what it would be like, if you can, being an Israelite around this time. Years of hard labor, working for nothing, taskmasters constantly breathing down your neck, living under these chains of oppression, and there's no sign of hope on the horizon. Day after day, as a good Israelite would have, you try to keep the faith. Maybe when you get a chance in the moments, uh, the few moments that you do get a break uh, from being underneath the Egyptian taskmasters, you talk with your friends and family and try to remind each other of all these stories that you had heard of God working, all these promises that God had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about claiming land and being numerous in number. And through you, the entire world is going to be blessed because God blesses you. But the reality is you feel like you're living under a curse, not a blessing. One day you hear rumors of someone who's making plans to go talk to Pharaoh to demand your release. You kind of shake it off. Uh, maybe you've got your hopes up before, right? Only to be let down. In times past, during this, these years of slavery, you had heard of been talks of rebellion and escape. Even some attempts, but every time it actually made things worse because Pharaoh got angry and he just made things harder on you. So you're actually a little fearful of what might happen. 
Plus, you've heard of this Moses guy, right? You heard he had a pretty cushy upbringing. He actually got to grow up in Pharaoh's house, the previous Pharaoh's house. Um, then he fled the country for a long time, wasn't even involved under slavery. You're like, who is this guy coming back in? I don't know if I even really trust his motives. Also, from what you were told, the poor kid grew up with a pretty bad speech problem. Um, you're pretty doubtful he's the guy that's going to go petition to the polit political leaders of the day and the king of the day and get you guys released, as if Pharaoh would just let you go and, you know, get rid of all his free labor. So you just do like you've done before, try to stay unnoticed, hope that you can get by this day without getting another whip on your back, and just put your head down and get back to work. Though in your most optimistic moments, you can't help but wish maybe this time would be different. From what you've heard, they did say that this Moses guy was one of the few young baby boys who survived years before, before you were ever born, uh, when the previous Pharaoh had commanded that all these boys were to be killed. All these boys, uh, because they were scared of how they would grow into a nation, were to be killed, and that this Moses guy was one that survived that slaughter. So maybe there was something special about him. So the day of the meeting comes, you've heard murmurings and rumorings that he was going to be talking to Pharaoh that day, and everyone's talking about it. Honestly, it's slowing your work down a little bit. Um, but not too far into the day, all the exciting buzz gets exchanged for deep dread and disappointment because what you had feared happens. The taskmasters get really angry. Pharaoh gets really angry, and they give you new and unrealistic demands and start beating you when you can't meet them. You watch your own brothers, maybe even your own sons or daughters, be beaten. They say that Pharaoh is onto the plan, it's not going to work, and maybe you guys should think about it a little more next time you start scheming your escape. So that evening, when your work is finally done and you do get released after the longest day of work you've had in a long time, you join this raucous crowd that begins to hunt down Moses and Aaron. Exodus 5.21 records what you guys say to them. May the Lord take note of you and judge because you have made us reek to Pharaoh and his officials putting a sword in their hand to kill us. You give Moses what for and you leave angered and frustrated that you even let yourself believe this time might be any different. But over the next few days, some weird things start happening. Not to you, of course, but to the Egyptians. You and your people get let off free, but you hear of all these wild things that start happening. And every time one of these strange things happen, at first it gets worse because they take it out on you. But over time, the Egyptians are so distracted by these plagues that they start to leave you alone. And you have a little more free time, a little more time to talk and, and maybe start thinking, maybe like something's going on. This is weird. And you start to listen to this Moses guy. I mean, you start hearing him say things and they come to pass. You hear him claim that the next day something wild's gonna happen, like a, a, you know, a river's gonna turn to blood and it actually happens. And you start listening to him, maybe even forgive him for you know, making Pharaoh mad in the first place. And soon you're joining the entire nation of Israel walking out of Egypt scot-free. And not only that, but they actually give you a bunch of stuff and you get to plunder them on your way out the door. And Moses is just leading the charge. You head out and by this point, because of everything that your eyes have seen, you are convinced that this Moses is a prophet of God. Who cares if he can't really talk that well? His actions have shown that God is with him 
and he's using him to do things you had only ever heard about as an ancient memory. You can't believe you're free. And you begin to experience joy like you've never experienced. But it doesn't last that long. Soon you turn around and you start hearing people looking in the back of the, the crowd that's heading out of Egypt looks back and you see an entire Egyptian army heading your way. So of course you start spreading the message that the Egyptians are coming and it kind of goes to the front and the front of the line looks ahead to start moving quicker and all they see is this giant sea, the Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea as you've heard it called. The confidence that you just had in Moses just a few moments ago is immediately gone. The more, boi the more boisterous among you start yelling at Moses. Why did you just leave us alone? Did you just bring us out here to die? At least in Egypt, we had some food and we knew that we were gonna survive. Exodus 14, 13 through 14 records how Moses responds. Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you must be quiet, which is really hard for you and your friends to do. You can't believe the confidence that Moses speaks with because you see no way out. But over the next couple of hours, you'll see things with your own eyes you'll never forget. The waters of the Red Sea part before you. Your family and the entire nation walks through on dry ground. And when the Egyptians try to chase after you and do the same, immediately the waters come over and overtake the Egyptians. You walk out free on the other side. Exodus 14, 29 through 31. But the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians and Israel saw that the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and his servant, Moses. This is the Exodus story. The story of redemption through the hand of God's prophet and servant named Moses. This story will continue to inform the entire nation of Israel and the people of God and give them their identity for years to come. And you would think that the beginning of this story, if this is how your story started, that it would carry each of them to faith and trust in Yahweh, this God who speaks, who hears, who acts and delivers. But like all humans, Israel was soon to forget God's wonders. If you remember the story, shortly after escaping Egypt, God makes a covenant with the nation of Israel at Sinai. He gives them the law in Exodus 20. We, we know this, we're familiar with this. The portion we call this in Exodus 20 is the 10 commandments. But here's the thing, they know they can't really commune with this God. He's too holy, too righteous. They need someone to speak to him on their behalf. And this is what we read in Exodus 20, right after the 10 commandments are given. Exodus 20, 18 through 19. All the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning, the sound of the ram's horn and the mountain surrounded by smoke because God speaks and gives the 10 commandments. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. You speak to us and we will listen, they said to Moses, but don't let God speak to us or we will die. 
The people clearly identify Moses as this mediator, this prophet, this voice of God to the people. And later in Deuteronomy, God affirms, the text you just heard read, that the people, when they asked for this mediator, he says, they spoke well. The people and God are both aware enough of the people's sin to recognize that they could not stand before this God without being destroyed. But God chose Moses to mediate on behalf of the people. This included giving the law, but it also included, included uh, this, this beautiful picture of Moses appealing to God and his emotions, which we don't think about often, but asking God not to destroy the people right after he comes down from the mountain and they're cheating on God with this golden calf saying, you're the one that brought us up out of Egypt. We're talking like less than 40 days into this covenant. And they're saying, we're worshiping this golden calf. And God's like, you know what? I'm starting over. And we see this picture of Moses saying, God, don't do that. If you're gonna do that, destroy me instead. And so God relents and he writes the covenants on the tablet again. And he begins to meet with Moses, we're told, like one meets with a friend, has a friendship with him. He even lets Moses see his glory kind of pass in front of him loosely. And, and we're told the story of the face of Moses glowing with radiance. But even through all of this, the people continue to have this love-hate relationship with Moses, the prophet. I guess like all of us, we like prophets when they deliver us, but hate them when they tell us the truth of our sin. The people have a lack of faith. They're on the cusp of going into the land, what we know as the promised land that God had told them they would receive and they, they have unbelief and so they end up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and this cycle of humanity continues. God shows up, gives grace, gives promises and humanity rebels in unbelief. And after all we've heard up to this point about Moses, you think that Moses would be the human exception. Maybe he would remain faithful. Maybe he would be able to lead the people to the promised land. If anybody could do it, it was the guy who delivered them from Egypt. But the problem is Moses is just another human. In Numbers 20, we're told that Moses is told to speak to a rock to bring water forth out of it to deliver the people when they're thirsty. And Moses gets angry. He distrusts God. And he strikes the rock instead and he, he calls the people these rebels and in his frustration with doubting rebels, he becomes a doubting rebel. And God says, because you didn't trust me to show forth my holiness among the people, you will not be able to lead the people to the promised land. This cycle of flawed leaders, we're gonna see it in Genesis when we go through Genesis in the new year. This cycle of flawed leaders among God's people continues but God's covenant does not let up. It's toward the end of Moses' life that he makes this prediction that we heard read a few moments ago in Deuteronomy about this better prophet that will arise like Moses in many ways, but better, more powerful, bringing more redemption, one that could be listened to and trusted completely. Let's read the text again, Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. This is what you requested from the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly. 
Back in Exodus that we read, let us not continue to hear the voice of the Lord, our God, or see this great fire any longer so that we will not die. Then the Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. And this prediction from Moses, this prophecy begins this melodic line of longing for a prophet that would come who could be fully and unequivocally trusted. Throughout the history of Israel, there were many prophets that were raised up. Many of them stood up and spoke truth, spoke the words of God, both to the oppressors of the nation of Israel and also to Israel themselves. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, many more. All God's prophets calling out the brokenness of sin and humanity, calling out hard hearts that existed, that took advantage of other humans, that ignored the least of these. But even among their prophecies, the very prophets themselves promised of a day that was coming when hard hearts would not only be exposed, but could also be actually transformed. See, all of the prophets at their best could speak truth. They could expose hearts of stone, but they did not have the power to give hearts of flesh that actually began to love God and love his ways. They could reveal how the old covenant had been broken throughout history, but they couldn't bring a new covenant of grace. They couldn't give hearts of flesh that loved God. And I'm not saying their job was easy. It's not always easy to speak truth. These earthly prophets could do that in the power and name of God, but they could not forgive sins. They couldn't make people whole. They couldn't liberate people from sin and death. Through all of their truth telling, years after years of these prophets of God, the cycle of sin and death continues. And because they don't listen, God finally stops speaking through earthly prophets. The last prophet of God that we know of that spoke his name was Malachi. You'll find it, it's the last book of your, our version of the New Testament, the way we have it. He predicts what seems to be two more prophets that were coming, and he calls them messengers. Look at Malachi 3.1. It's the last prophet we know of. See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. So that's one messenger. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. There's two different messengers there. At the culmination of all the prophets, there's this promise of two more prophets, two more messengers who would come, one who would prepare the way and another who's bringing this new covenant of delight and joy, this thing we're all longing for. And then after that, for 400 years, no prophets. No voice of God speaking through men. Just the ancient stories of old, some still in oral tradition, some written down and enters this time of waiting for an arrival, an advent of a redeemer, a chosen one, a Messiah, someone better than Moses. One who could speak God's truth 
with full validity. And with all that in mind, I want you to listen as I read John's account of the birth of Christ into the world. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Ain't no prophet ever been spoken of like this one. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness or a messenger to testify about the light so that all might believe with faith through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify, bear witness to about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was created through him and yet the world did not recognize him. Like Moses, it was an unlikely prophet. He came to his own and his own people, even though he came up from among his brothers, his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of flesh or of the will of man, but of the will of God. The word, this all-powerful word that created all things, who is God, became flesh and dwelt among us. We, those of us who couldn't bear to see the face of God because we would be destroyed. We've now observed his glory. The glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Wait, what, John? You were born first. No, like this is it. This is the one we've always wanted for. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever really seen God. But now, the one and only son who is himself God and is at the father's side, he has revealed him in the form of a sleeping baby. After 400 years into the stillness, a boy named Jesus was born. The very word of God enthroned in a baby who couldn't even say his own name, who couldn't even speak. Even more unlikely than Moses is this prophet and messenger of a new covenant. As the fulfillment of the first messenger and prophet, John the Baptist goes before Jesus. We're told in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way. And then Emmanuel, God with us, arrives as the second and final messenger that Malachi predicted. This baby boy who would grow up to be the savior of the world, here to redeem us and bring us out of slavery to sin. He's better than Moses. 
He wasn't just the mouthpiece of God. He was the very living word, the logos of God in flesh. And he makes his home and tabernacles among men. He doesn't need to set up a tabernacle like Moses did in the wilderness. So you can kind of come talk to him and get some glimpse of God. No, he is the tabernacle through whom we see the, the blazing glory of God. He's not distant and removed. He's not something that we look at on a mountain where we're kind of a little scared because we don't know how to do it because we know our own brokenness and the holiness of God. But rather, he's a God that we can see. That's what the incarnation is about, church. He's a God who walked and talked and breathed and cried and laughed and hugged and ran around and played as a little boy. We see his humanity, but we also get a glimpse into his godness. The word was God. This story in Matthew 17 of what's called the transfiguration, where a few of Jesus's close disciples get to see a glimpse of the glory of God revealed in the person of Jesus. And in that account, I want you to look at what a voice from heaven says. Matthew 17, five. Suddenly a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This was also said at Jesus's baptism. This is the prophet predicted that was coming, who's also a son and we're commanded to listen to all his words. You want to know the way to life. Listen to Jesus. This Jesus is better than Moses because he didn't just see the passing glory of God. This Jesus has been face to face with the Father inside the Trinity and the Spirit all together with the blazing glory of God from all eternity past. And in his being, this Jesus bears, we're told later, the exact imprint of God's nature. And what does this final prophet say to us? Yes, he reveals our sin. He reveals the inadequacies of our own effort. But look at what he says in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Church, you want to see God? Look to Christ. These are the words of grace and truth that Jesus brought. He's not just a prophet who warns of death and sin. He offers a way to life. And the only way he could offer this is that he would take the same path as many prophets had before, which is to eventually be rejected and killed. Later in Acts, we won't read it, but in Acts chapter three, Peter preaches a message and in Acts chapter seven, Stephen preaches a message and both of them quote from the Deuteronomy passage that we heard read earlier. And what they do in their quoting is they prove from scripture how all the prophets have been rejected and killed. And in pretty amazing boldness, they say, you've done the same thing with Christ and show us how Christ is that final prophet and how the people killed him like they did all the previous prophets. And here's the thing, we read those stories and we like to think we'd be different. We like to think that we'd be different than the grumbling, unbelieving Israelites. 
who didn't trust God and complained over and over and over, even after seeing God work. But the reality is, we're not. I'm not. It's why we normally only like prophets once they're dead. Because we can pick and choose which words we listen to. And we can ignore the ones that condemn our hearts. See, at the end of the day, if we take seriously the prophetic words of the Old Testament, if we take seriously the words of Christ, we all stand condemned. We all are enslaved to sin, both by the sin that has been done to us, that we've been hurt by others who have sinned against us, and also the sin in our hearts that recognizes we're part of the problem. Like Moses, who can call out the Israelites. We're like, yes, we can call out other people's sin and, and, and we have been hurt and there's been sin that's been done to us, but we also look in our own hearts and realize that we're a part of the problem. We're like the Israelites standing at the base of the mountain, distant from God, recognizing that we need a mediator. Like the Israelites in Egypt, we are enslaved to sin and death. If your heart is like mine, I'm often full of unbelief and doubt and distrust. I've seen God work and I can try to remind myself of that. But in the moment, I'm like, God, I don't really know if you can do this. I don't really know if you're going to do what you say you're going to do. I don't understand how you can work all this for good. I see the brokenness. There's no way you can do something here. It's a mess. And we need a messenger, a prophet of a new covenant. And that's what Jesus is. See, this baby boy wasn't just born so you could put up a little nativity scene with an unrealistic white chubby Jesus and look at it. This baby boy wasn't just born so you could get with your family and friends and play nice for a few days and act like you like each other. If that's all Christmas is about, to give us just a few days of this fake peace, then we've missed the message of Advent. See, the birth of this baby boy into 400 years of silence was the first battle cry of a powerful prophet and redeemer who is declaring war on sin and death and darkness. Because the enemy cannot take away the seed that was promised back in Genesis 3.15. You know that's what's going on. When Herod tries to kill all the baby boys, the enemy's taking one last ditch effort at getting rid of this Jesus in his own time and in his own way. But here's the thing, no one takes the life of Jesus. He says that. You think I went to the cross because someone put me up there? No one takes my life, but I do lay it down. The promised seed of this woman was constantly being attacked, but God preserved it so Christ could sacrificially lay it down. And eventually that's what he does. He gives up his life as he heads to a Roman cross of wood to be crucified on a, a, a cross by two thieves, like many prophets before him, disgraced and killed. And as he's buried in the tomb, just like Moses went into the belly of the beast and confronted Pharaoh, Jesus is descending into hell to confront all the powers of darkness and hell. And in his death, he becomes sin for us. He's, he's doing something here. There's this theological thing going on where he takes on our sin, somehow becomes it for us and allows himself to be drowned in the Red Sea of God's justice so that we might go scot-free on the other side. And he lays dead in a tomb 
but unlike all other prophets that go before him, where you can go and see their tomb. You can go see the place where they were buried, not this prophet, because he was more than just a prophet. He was the savior of the world. And on the third day, after descending to hell and defeating all the powers of darkness, he gets back up from the grave and he proves to the entire world that he is victorious. The head of the serpent has been crushed. He has waged war and won. The final gasping breath of evil has been heard. And this true and better prophet silences the enemy once and for all. This church is the hope of Advent. This is the hope of the gospel that in the waiting, in the longing, in the chaos that we walk through, in the silence where we wonder how could this relationship ever be restored or how could you turn this to glory or how could this sickness be doing anything good and this pain work anything glorious? There's a promise of one who has come to redeem the world. And so even though, yes, our bodies groan with all creation, we know that redemption is in store. And here's the great thing. When Jesus sends back to his father, he doesn't leave us in silence. You know what he tells us? It's actually better that I go away because I'm leaving my spirit in each and every one of you as individuals and in you corporately as the church. Unlike the 400 years of waiting in silence, we have a guarantee, a down payment, one who speaks to us that says he is coming back to make all things new. Ephesians 1.13 says, in him, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth. What's that word of truth? The gospel of your salvation. And when you believed, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Unlike the nation of Israel, we don't need a mediator to talk to God, church. There's one mediator between God and man, and that's the person Christ, Jesus. And he's come, and you have access to God right now. So in the waiting, and I know many of you are here, in the longing, as we sit between the first advent of Jesus, and we wait with patience and longing and sometimes doubt and with gritted teeth for the second arrival, we can have hope. Yes, the world is broken. Yes, there is grief. Yes, there is pain. But the hope of Advent is that a redeemer is coming and you can trust that he will make good on his word. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. He's preparing a home for you. And this home far outweighs the most idyllic version of Christmas you could ever dream of. Provision, joy, abundance, good gifts. The chief one being Christ himself. Family, belonging, love. Jesus restores all our brokenness. This is the eternal promised land that this prophet will bring us to. And unlike Moses, he will not fail to deliver. You can trust him, not because of my word, but because of his. And because he's proven his love for you, even to the point of death 
on a cross to make you new. So in close, I want you to hear the final prophetic words of the New Testament in a book called Revelation. And I want you to know that you can count on this as true. Just as sure as he came the first time, Jesus will return to end all brokenness. And this is the prophetic vision we read. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said himself, look, I am making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. You can count on them. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha, the omega, the beginning, and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things. And I will be his God. He will be my son.